Welcome, everyone, to this meeting of the Hooper Economic Policy Working Group. It's a privilege to even orchestrate this amazing session. Leo Haining is a senior fellow at Hoover and a professor at UCLA. will be orchestrating this panel of Kevin Keeley, who's a member of the California Assembly, and Michael Schellenberger, an author and an expert in this topic. And the topic is California homelessness, new policies to address an intractable problem. We're anxious to hear what you all have to say. Lee, go ahead. John, thank you so much. Homelessness is one of the most important and complex issues facing us, and we're delighted to have two experts joining us today to help explain why homelessness continues to worsen and to provide fresh ideas to address this issue humanely and in a fiscally responsible way. I'm pleased to introduce our two panelists in alphabetical order. One of our experts is the Honorable Kevin Kiley, who joined the California State Assembly in 2016. In 2020, Kevin was named the, the National Legislature of the National Legislature of the Year by the Association of Independent Workers. Kevin's experience, uh, this, is a remark this is remarkable. His experience ranges from having served as an inner city Los Angeles high school English teacher to also serving as our state's deputy attorney general. Kevin has authored new laws on freedom of speech, privacy, and criminal justice reform. He is, he is one of a group of California state legislators who have created a package of new legislation called ACT. And Kevin will get into that in, uh, in this, in this uh, conversation to address homelessness in the state. Kevin received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his law degree from Yale. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. Our other panelist is Michael Schellenberger, who is the best-selling author of San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. It was published last year. It's, uh, it's a current bestseller. And Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, which has been translated into 16 languages. Both uh, are remarkably good books, and I rec recommend them to everyone very highly. Many governments, including those including the United States, the UK, Japan, Taiwan, and Germany, have called on Michael to testify and advise them in the area of homelessness and the environment. Michael received his bachelor's degree from Berlin College. We'll begin with Michael. And Michael, in as I read your as I read your books, I've noticed that you describe yourself as being is being drawn positively to progressive causes uh, back in the day, uh, but that your visions regarding progressivism have changed over time. And, and I suspect writing San Francisco um, played a role in that. Um, each panelist is gonna take about six to eight minutes to make some opening remarks. We'll then have a conversation between the three of us. Um, so Michael, um, we're looking forward to hearing from you and, 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 how, and how you changed uh, your visions regarding progressivism. Sure, thanks, Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to um, offer my experience and, and some of my research findings. So yeah, as background, I worked um, for the George Soros' foundation and many of his grantees in the late 1990s. I advocated for criminal justice reform, harm reduction, drug decriminalization. I still believe that we need to make a distinction between 
serious psychopathic and sociopathic violent criminals who belong in prison and people who are just drug addicts or people who are mentally ill and require medical care. And I thought that's what we were going for in the late 1990s. Um, and I got out of the work in the early 2000s to focus on the environment, but sort of checked back in when many people did in around 2017 when drug overdose deaths rose to 70,000 in the United States. They were 17,000 in the year 2000, so just a huge increase. And to put that number in perspective, drug overdose and poisoning deaths in the United States will, will reach 107,000 or more this year. That's three times more people than are killed in car accidents in the United States. It's almost five times more uh, deaths from homicides. And uh, it's a number, um, it's just a shocking amount of, of deaths. It's the number one cause of uh, accidental deaths for adults age 18 to 45. So I think it's important to pull apart what we mean by homelessness. There's the proverbial mother with two kids escaping an abusive husband who has no underlying drug addiction or mental illness problem. She might experience some temporary homelessness, but as for the most part, we do a pretty good job of taking care of that person as a society, both in terms of government agencies and in private charities. She is not going to take her kids and go live in a homeless encampment. I've interviewed hundreds of people in homeless encampments over the last three years. I've never encountered anybody who was sober, drug-free or without mental illness, not a single person. I went to Amsterdam in 2019 and I discovered there were no homeless encampments. There was very few homeless people. In fact, I only, we only found one and we had to go look for him. And I was with a member of parliament at the time whose husband oversees drug policy in Netherlands. And I asked what it is that they're doing and he said, you know, we had open drug scenes like you have in California, but we shut them down. And they had them in the 1980s, the early 90s. They were mostly a focus on heroin in one neighborhood of Amsterdam. And on my return, I discovered that there's a significant body of research into what are called open drug scenes. We euphemistically call them homeless encampments, but it's, it's an imprecise word in part because it tricks your brain into thinking that we're dealing fundamentally with a housing problem. California, without doubt, has a housing shortage, but that's not the reason that people go live in homeless encampments. These are open air drug scenes. Open drug scenes are open air drug markets where um, late stage addicts live because they have either been kicked out of the homes of friends and family, they've stopped working, and they want to be close to the dealers. Follows the exact same pattern in Europe, open drug scenes are basically the same everywhere in the world. There's some variety in terms of the drugs used. We have a significantly higher share of seriously mentally ill people in those open drug scenes. And the reasons that we have them is because we allow them. There's, they don't allow open drug scenes in many other parts of the United States. Boston briefly had a open drug scene at Cass and Massachusetts Avenues. They shut it down. Uh, it, it periodically comes up again, but there's just a different set of social norms on the East Coast, including among very uh, progressive people. 
Similarly, New York has built sufficient homeless shelters and requires people to stay in them. New York shelters 95% of its homeless population. By contrast, Los Angeles and most of the rest of California only shelters a third. There's been a natural experiment that we've been conducting over the last several years to see what the different impact of those policies are. The results are in. We now know that more homeless people are killed in Los Angeles than in New York, even though there are at least on paper 14,000 fewer homeless people in Los Angeles than New York. That statistic alone, in my view, should merit shutting down the open air drug scenes, requiring people to go into shelter, building emergency shelters as required. Nearly 100% of the women in the homeless encampments or the so-called homeless encampments, the open drug scenes that I interview have been sexually assaulted multiple times. I discover mentally, almost every time I go to Skid Row, I discover mentally ill people, many of whom are still in a hospital gown wearing a hospital bracelet who are in psychotic states. Last time I was in Skid Row, I discovered a two-story wooden structure that was serving as a brothel to engage in human trafficking and allow for prostitution. So in my view, the mortality figures alone should suffice to shut down the homeless encampments across California. The deaths, by the way, are from people being hit by cars because sleeping on the street, people get run over by cars, homicides and drug overdoses. It's not to say that those things don't occur inside shelters, they just occur at a far lower rate, which is why LA has three times more than New York. The final piece of it, so we need, we have a housing first policy, which is this ridiculous policy that suggests that we should just provide free housing to anybody who demands it. That's literally what the policy says. That's not what works. It's not what's worked anywhere in the world. What works is a shelter first policy. We do have a moral obligation and the Supreme Court has upheld that we have a legal obligation to shelter all of our citizens with clean, basic and safe shelter. Housing should be earned as a reward for abstinence or complying with your psychiatric diagnosis. And that treatment should be should come first too. So it's shelter first, treatment first, housing earned. The final piece of that I would say is that we need a statewide psychiatric and addiction care system I'm calling CalPsych. This is not a problem that can be solved at the county level. The LA health system is overwhelmed. There's no way that Los Angeles or San Francisco can treat all of the sick people that are on their streets. We can solve this problem at a statewide level. California is rich in land. Land and labor costs are much lower in other parts of the state. A single statewide system would allow for people to be placed in the psychiatric hospitals, shelters, drug rehab facilities, and group homes in different parts of the state where those vacancies become available and be much more efficient with much less administrative. So I'll just close by saying my conservative friends worry that I'm talking about creating a new government program. In fact, I'm proposing that we reduce the number of government programs from 58, 58 separate state, sorry, 58 different county-based psychiatric and addiction care systems we, we should reduce them to a single system, CalPsych. And with that, I'll stop, Lee. And that gives us, I think, an overview of what I see the problem as and what I think the solutions are. Michael, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Kevin, um, 
before uh, before I open it up to uh, to your opening remarks, um, I thought I would read the concluding statement from a California state government commission panel that was tasked with writing a report about homelessness. And the conclusion is the following. There are between 100,000 to 250,000 homeless in California. Their problems are diverse. They have multiple needs. Programs abound, but their effectiveness is hampered by a lack of firm leadership, a lack of a clear policy direction, and a multitude of policies existing under too many roofs. That state commission report was written 33 years ago in 1989. This reminds me of the former great baseball player, Yogi Bear of the, of the New York Yankees. So Kevin, I'd like to ask you, um, is this deja vu all over again from your standpoint and where California stands in terms of this homelessness issues? Uh, well, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, the problem keeps getting worse and the policies haven't changed. I mean, the things that Michael just spoke about just really aren't part of the uh, conversation at all. Uh, and uh, the the problem has been, you know, essentially ignored for some time. It finally became so bad uh, in early 2020. Uh, polling was showing that this was the number one issue uh, for Californians. So uh, Governor Newsom decided he needed to uh, at least look like something was being done. So he devoted his entire uh, state of the state speech that year. This was, uh, I think it was February of 2020. So it was just before everything uh, with COVID began uh, to, uh, to the issue of homelessness. He even said in his speech that it was a disgrace. Uh, and yet we've seen uh, no change at all in the way the, uh, the situation is handled. Uh, the solution is always just let's provide more funding. I mean, that's that's literally what it is. You'll see a big press release. We're taking homelessness seriously. We're going to spend a billion dollars more this year. We're going to spend $2 billion more this year. There have been $17 billion spent uh, over the last four years. Uh, even And that's always been the solution, even though California's own nonpartisan legislative analysts, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, provides uh, periodic uh, assessments of policy proposals, uh, said in 2020 when there was this new proposal for additional funding that uh, that new funding uh, is not going to make a difference and will quickly dissipate was their was their terminology uh, because there is no clear strategy and they've uh, sounded that alarm time and again. Uh, even uh, that year, uh, Governor Newsom's own mental health czar said that that homelessness in California is not a money problem; it's a leadership problem. Uh, that's the governor's own top advisor. He said it's a problem of leadership at the state level. And yet, nevertheless, uh, we've simply seen a part. The only real policy innovation, if you will, is this project room key, project home key, which is just you know the the basic failed uh, housing first policy. Uh, but that's just been sort of the only uh, you know <laughs> policy uh, or strategy that exists aside from let's just throw more money at the problem. As we've continued to throw more money at the problem, it's only gotten worse. Uh, homelessness has gone up in California while it's gone down in other parts of the country. Uh, as Michael noted, that I mean the disparities are just completely stark when you look at. Uh, what's happening here versus elsewhere. I think we have about half of the unsheltered uh, homeless population uh, in the United States right now. Uh, so in uh, 2020, I actually proposed doing an audit of all uh, state 
homelessness spending to see exactly where uh, the money was going. Uh, there's what's called the Joint Legislative Audit Committee in our legislature, uh, and any legislator can propose that an audit be done. Uh, all you need to do is get a majority of the five assembly members on the committee and get a majority of the five senators on the committee uh, to vote in favor of it, and the audit is done. Uh, well, I got all five senators to sign on. They voted for it. Uh, however, the governor's office applied pressure to the five assembly members, and so two of them voted for it, and three of them ended up abstaining. And so even though it was a vote of 5-0 on the Senate side, 2-0 to 0 on the, uh, or so 3, I guess, on the Assembly side, um, the audit did not go forward. Uh, additional spending was proposed that year and last year. Uh, and, uh, you know, things have continued uh, as they have. By the way, I have introduced that audit proposal again this year, and we're having a hard time even getting it set for a committee, for the committee to hear it uh, in their meeting coming up. Uh, on June 27th. So uh, clearly there is just a lack of political will uh, to really um, tackle the problems, the problem in a way, the ways that have been shown uh, to make a difference. So a couple other sort of, uh, you know, facets of that uh, is uh, if you look at, uh, well, one of the, the issues that is sort of distinctive to this part of the country is we do have the Boise decision, uh, which Michael alluded to, uh, which suggests that you are not allowed to, the law enforcement can't essentially tell uh, the homeless to move along, can't break up the encampments unless there's a shelter bed that's at least available uh, for them to go to, which is why actually having available shelter uh, is, is so important because it empowers law enforcement uh, to then take those actions. But we've also made a number of changes to our criminal laws in California uh, that have undoubtedly contributed to the problem, uh, starting with Prop 47, Prop 57, uh, realignment, uh, and various other uh, early release programs that have, on the one hand, uh, sent people uh, out onto the streets. Uh, many, in, in many cases, they don't have any place to go. But then on the other hand, uh, have uh, enabled this sort of open drug use and uh, eviscerated some of the tools that we have uh, for allowing people to overcome addiction. So Prop 47, for example, has uh, sort of been the death knell for drug par uh, courts in large parts of California. Uh, drug courts have had a pretty, you know, at least some record of success in getting uh, folks to uh, be able to turn their lives around. Uh, but the key was that if you're able to charge someone with a felony uh, for possession of at least a class A drug, uh, then that provides leverage for prosecutors to induce uh, the person to sign up for a drug treatment program. Uh, but under Prop 47, uh, those offenses can no longer be charged as felonies. So in practice, they really aren't charged at all. Uh, and so there is no leverage uh, to get people into those programs and people are not in the, you know, these uh, addicts uh, aren't given the help uh, that they need. Um, so, uh, you know, and then, then uh, of course, uh, with mental health uh, being such a, a huge part of the problem as well, this is another area uh, where the state has just lacked any strategy uh, whatsoever for effectively using uh, the mental health dollars, which are, are vast, uh, that we have. Uh, there's California has the Mental Health Services Act this past, what, 10, 12 years ago. It was this billionaire's tax that was proposed. Daryl Issa, who's now the uh, mayor of Sacramento, was sort of the chief uh, proponent of it. And uh, there have been several uh, you know, audits and reports by the Little Hoover Commission, uh, I guess unrelated to the Hoover Institute, I think. Uh, but uh, 
going over, uh, you know, the the failure of these funds to be used uh, effectively uh, and uh, to really get help to the folks that need it. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, again, money just seems to be vanishing into thin air. This is another uh, thing that I've tried to, to work on. We had set up, um, uh, I had legislation that would have actually, uh, you know, required tracking where these dollars went, uh, required, you know, measuring uh, which programs are being funded at the county level, uh, measuring what the actual outcomes are, uh, you know, in terms of uh, allowing people to, to get past uh, some of these uh, issues that are such a big uh, contributor to homelessness, but uh, the, you know the way our legislature works, that bill actually passed a committee, but then it sort of vanished behind uh, closed doors in what's called the appropriation uh, suspense file. So uh, that's uh, you know a, a few pieces of the problem. Uh, the overarching issue uh, is that we just uh, don't have. There's been no political will to actually uh, take on the issue of homelessness uh, in the very clear uh, you know eyed way that that Michael just explained it which is looking at what's actually happening on the ground and what uh, policy mechanisms are available to, to try to, to, to give people help. Kevin, thank you so much. Um, you know, as uh, so I come, I come at this problem or this issue from an economics background, and it seems that the first order of business is really to identify and try to measure and quantify what we can. And what, um, what strikes me as just so surprising is that so much of what I've read about homelessness is that it seems the state has pretended for a long time that this was not a mental health issue, that mental health problems did not were not a significant component of that. Um, so case in point, uh, there was a state report that indicated 29% of those who were homeless had mental health and or um, substance abuse issues. Um, you know, Michael, you mentioned that you've gone to these um, homeless camps and you can't find anyone um, who is not in this category. Um, and I think if we ask it, really any, anyone <laughs> that homelessness is not a normal state of affairs, uh, chronic homelessness. Um, and there's a UCLA study that found 88% of those were identified as having um, substance abuse or and or um, emotional health issues. The LA Times did a piece where then it, they identified 77% um, as as having emotional as having these issues. Um, you know, thoughts on why we've tried to avoid uh, confronting what seems to be 75 to 80% of the challenges that we face and, is a, and, and why we're so far behind the eight ball now in terms of addressing this and trying to get, trying to get these people treatment and help. Um, you know, what, what, what is it about that aspect that we've, that we've so, tried to hide from for so long? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is just that it's confusing because we do need more housing. <laughs> I mean, we're just, we don't have enough housing in California. I think everybody agrees with that. I don't even need to say anything about it. The second thing is that we need more places for people to go. You know, you, we shut down these encampments all the time and then people just go somewhere else. So you have to have shelters, psychiatric beds and hospitals, group homes like residential care facilities, some amount of permanent supportive housing, which is now the dogmatic single only alternative, but you do need some of that. Um, 
and rehab centers. I mean, those are basically, you need those five different kinds of facilities, but that's not why people end up in the open drug scene. The, the, you know, there was a deliberate strategy to mislead people by so-called homeless advocates starting in the 1980s. And this is not even my view. This is something I got from the academic literature, including from the very left-wing academics, Teresa Gowan, um, uh, Christopher Jenks at Harvard. You know, they wrote the best books on homelessness, and they describe how basically socialist or progressive or radical left activists in favor of giving more subsidized housing for poor people started to mix up the population of just poor very poor people with the population of people suffering from addiction and mental illness and you know i'm sympathetic to some amount of subsidized housing i support section 8 vouchers for example i think section 8 vouchers have done a lot of good that's a subset that's the way we subsidize housing for low-income people I support the earned income tax credit, which basically subsidizes low wage workers and rewards work. My concern is that you have people that are in late stage addiction, including people with serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder who need medical help. And instead, we just are trying to give them their own apartment units without treating the underlying cause of their so-called homelessness obviously doesn't work. You know, one of the things about addiction is a, a, a mental disorder that leads you to, to lose control of your behaviors. And so, you know, people that don't know much about addiction, I mean, really half of us have family or friends that have suffered from pretty serious forms of addiction. But the society does have some awareness that people that are suffering serious addiction require an intervention. We have a whole TV show called Intervention. But once you quit working, overstay your welcome with friends and family, you're kicked out of your friends or family house because probably because you've been stealing, lying and cheating them, you end up on the street, then it's up to society to provide that intervention. And what, what one should do is say you can't sleep outside, you can go into shelter, you can go back home, you can move somewhere else, but you can't stay outside. Um, as Assemblymember Kylie said, you know, we have this ruling now, which I think I'm glad to have, it just says you have to have basic clean shelter for people. So we have to provide that. We should. Why don't we do it? Well, you've got these so-called homeless advocates, all of whom are basically pretty radical, often anarchist groups. And I'm speaking specifically of the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness, the various groups that exist in L.A., these are folks whose radical politics lead them to become homeless advocates. And they literally are out there trying to prevent people from getting medical care, including like pregnant women. So what is that? That is what I would call, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I've liberally stolen from the best available scholarship. I'm, very little is original to my own analysis. I synthesized. But the best I could come up with is it's pathological altruism on the one hand, it's some idea that I'm helping you because when you interview somebody on the street who's an addict and you're like, hey, can we can we get you inside to get some help? They're like, no, no, I'm fine right here smoking methamphetamine and fentanyl. I don't want to move. I interviewed a woman who was eight months pregnant who did not want to go inside. She was a fentanyl addict. Well, you have to kind of we have to grow up a bit and go, first of all, no, you can't do that 
because we have laws and sidewalks don't belong to you. They belong to everybody. And B, we're not going to allow people to just self-destruct on the streets like that. So on the one hand, it's pathological altruism, but then there's a darker, more radical kind of hatred of civilization, anti-system, anarchism that motivates the leadership. I think for the average person on the street, we're just, you know, being dumb liberals, I guess, or you could call it Big Lebowski syndrome, you know, which is kind of, if you're familiar with the great Coen Brothers film of the name Big Lebowski, there's a California thing, which is very much like, hey, take it easy, man. You know, you like to drink Chardonnay and smoke marijuana. Why not let this poor person sit there and smoke meth and, a, and fentanyl in a tent? Um, Michael, the, the skeptic in me is tempted to say, um, I'd like to ask you for your opinion about this. Um, is homelessness a growth industry in California? There are people who are making a living from this. Um, they have some some self-interest. And, and again, I'm not saying this is true, but the economist me says, hmm, a lot of people have some skin in the game and, and, and are making money from, from uh, what is a horrible human condition. Um, reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the money sustains it. These things are not, they're not contradictions. In other words, you know, the conquistadores believed in God and they also went to the gold. So the homeless policy advocates, they don't wake. I mean, the thing is you have to remember about homeless policy advocates is that they're not, I mean, they're the CEOs of some of the providers can make a quarter million a year, but the advocates, they're just like pretty low wage, nonprofit, true believers. And they certainly don't wake up in the morning being like, I hope there's more homelessness because it'll provide me with more jobs and money. On the other hand, yeah, and a more kind of emergent quality, the homeless industrial complex, I think as a kind of emergent phenomenon doesn't want to solve the problem. But I think at the individual level, you know, and even at the CEO level, I mean, there's a beautiful little book, I cited it briefly in San Francisco, by the by the CEO of PATH, which is one of the big homeless service providers in Los Angeles, and also in San Diego. And he wrote a book, very dark, being like how there's all these interests that don't want to solve homelessness. And he was like a service provider himself. So I think there's some of that. Um, but I think that the, the, you know, the ideology operates on the whole society, not just on the institutions, you know. And so in that sense, I think we're all, I think people are trapped in this pathological altruism. Kevin, I'd like to bring you and I'd like to. Um, I'd like to, to uh, return to, um, to ideas about accountability and accountability of, of <clears throat> what our policies are implementing um, or, or achieving. And, th you know, the, the facts that you both have touched on, um, you know, regarding mental health issues and homelessness and what we need to do about it. At some level, there's a common sense in your face. Hey, <laughs> it's it, there's no surprise why we continue to fail. Um, so, Kevin, from your point, if I might ask you, and, and and feel free to say what you're willing to say, and if there's areas you'd like not to go into, that's I understand. But having been the legislature for five to six years. Um, 
Are you surprised that there has been more recognition of, hey, we need to confront this 800-pound gorilla in the room, and we need to do it with some accountability? Um, based on your experience with your colleagues, I, I, I read um, your, your uh, well, Democratic colleague Phil Ting remarked, we've spent billions on this, and it's unclear whether we've succeeded at all. Do you get a sense of a bipartisan um, a bipartisan connection of trying to advance this? Uh, and I'd love to hear some ideas from you um, representing your colleagues uh, about the ACT package of legislation. Yeah, so that's uh, something that we've proposed in the Republican caucus. Uh, and, uh, you know, it uh, it touches upon many of the issues that we've been, uh, you know, talking about in terms of uh, making it easier to build shelters, in terms of providing real mental health treatment, uh, reforming criminal laws, and having uh, some measure of accountability. Um, you know, to your question, like, is there maybe some bipartisan will to do something about it? I'd say not really. I mean, uh, you know, uh, in the sense that, you might have a few people who talk about it, but you don't see any real action, any major uh, paradigm shift. And, you know, to your, your last question uh, to Michael, I think that was an interesting question because, you know, when it comes to sort of what is uh, ailing California, I think it's uh, often a, a combination of this sort of radical or woke ideology uh, on the one hand and corruption uh, on the other hand. And I think that, you know, in most cases, the, the latter factor is actually uh, more controlling and uh, sort of the, the radical ideology is just kind of like window dressing or, or what have you, I mean, or a smokescreen. Uh, like if you look at our failing public school system, which is absolutely uh, abysmal, uh, widest achievement gaps pretty much in the country, pretty much the lowest outcomes for kids who are eligible for free or reduced lunch. Uh, you know, uh, that's a result of the, you know, completely corrupt education establishment that we have, uh, completely run by teachers unions, they spend more on politics than anyone in California, but then we get things like, you know, mandatory CRT as, uh, as, as a sort of, uh, you know, a smokescreen for all of that, right, that is, um, uh, you know, part of this sort of radical uh, progressive ideology. So I think that, you know, when it comes to, to homelessness, it's probably a similar story in some sense, you have this vast uh, you know, homeless industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that feeds off the system. Uh, but then there is this sort of, uh, you know, completely warped ideology that suggests that, well, we should just, uh, you know, somehow letting people die on the street and wither away uh, is somehow like, uh, you know, the, the progressive thing to do uh, when uh, that's a pretty, you know, hollow uh, understanding of freedom, uh, if that's how we're going to conceive it. Um, so, um, you know, I, I would like to say that there, there is, there are occasionally, you know, a moment like the governor's 2020 state of the state, where there's this recognition that we need to at least look like uh, we're doing something about it. Uh, but so far, there hasn't really been any major policy movement uh, that would actually uh, move us towards the sort of solutions that have been shown to work in other states. I mean, it's not brain surgery, right? You can uh, cite many examples of places that do what, uh, I like the way that Michael framed it, shelter first, housing earned, and you provide the services like uh, mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, uh, job training, family reunification, uh, the things that have been shown on the basis of actual data to work. So what seems to be missing from a lot of discussions about homelessness, um, but which are front and center in Europe and, you know, Michael, um, Portugal is one country that, um, that I've read a little bit about um, that's really quite liberal about the use of drugs, uh, but you simply cannot do it on, on the street and you cannot live on the street. Um, 
I'd like to get your both of your let me let me Kim, let me start with you. Um, part of the uh, part of the act um, package of legislation that you and your Republican colleagues have advanced. Um, accountability, compassion, treatment. Uh, part of that is a significant investment in state level psychiatric bed capacity, clinic capacity, um, almost certainly more psychiatric specialists, ranging from probably, I'm guessing, MDs down to PAs and nurse practitioners. Um, you know, when we look at, um, and at some level, this brings up, you know, the interesting complex issue of institutionalization. Uh, and I believe Gavin Newsom's CARES Act got through one committee, I believe it got through one committee, um, uh, I, I believe it was yesterday, um, which would, um, well, Kevin, you, you're going to know more about it than I am, so I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you describe what, what, uh, what this passage or going through this committee means for getting severely mentally health challenged people the treatment they need. Um, and does this, is this something that you can work with the governor on in the sense that he's, he seems to be at least be recognizing some aspect of this and advancing ideas that are broadly in line with what you and Mike were talking about? Yeah, I mean, and I should say that that is, I think, uh, actually is one thing that has perhaps uh, been, uh, you know, a, a positive uh, proposal. Um, I'm, it's not like uh, necessarily, you know, the the one thing that's going to solve the whole problem. And there's, you know, you referred to the uh, the additional funding that we're proposing to actually have trained uh, mental health uh, professionals available. So those are sort of two separate things. You know, the the CARES Act is. Uh, looking at um, reforming conservatorship laws, providing, uh, you know, um, a greater ability to sort of uh, get people who are at risk to themselves or others uh, off the streets and into treatment. And then the, uh, the part of this act set of uh, bills uh, dealing with, uh, with, with mental health would make sure that we have the capacity uh, there to get them the help that they need. So that, yeah, that bill has passed the Senate um, and it passed the Assembly Judiciary Committee yesterday. Um, it's actually gotten a lot of pushback uh, from uh, uh, the likes of the, the ACLU uh, and uh, some of these other uh, social justice groups, the, the folks that Michael was uh, referring to. Um, but so far, it's gotten pretty broad bipartisan support. Michael, let me bring you in. Um, I looked at some numbers in terms of the number of mentally ill who uh, who were in state hospitals back in the day versus today. Um, so in the 1950s, about 600,000 Americans in some form or another were in institutions. Um, if you just scale that number up by population growth, that would be about 1.4 million today. We have fewer than I believe 10,000 um, nationwide um, institutionalized. Uh, um, so we've been deinstitutionalizing people for 75 years. Um, a lot of people cite Reagan for this, but most of that deinstitutionalization was done by the time he became president. Uh, a lot of it was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, Thorazine was developed around that time in the 50s as an antipsychotic drug. Um, I'm not a psychiatrist, but my understanding is that 
Um, treating severe schizophrenia and psychotic episodes is, is challenging. Um, so as, uh, as someone who has been part of the progressive movement, you know, how would you think about these issues with the ACLU and civil liberties when we're talking about people that really at some level can't tell the sky is blue anymore. I mean, I, I hate to put it in that dimension, but the interviews you've done with people certainly present that way. Um, so thoughts on how we can get these people treatment um, when they're not really in a position to necessarily make that decision for themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if in a, if I had, you know, like a perfect world, I think we would be, we would have more ways to get our loved ones the psychiatric care and to compel the psychiatric care that we think they need. I think a big part of the reason that we don't and that we do it at such lower levels than other developed societies is that we are so much more libertarian. And that libertarianism exists on the left and the right. And in fact, it's the it's the overlapping libertarianism that contributed to the deinstitutionalization. Now, I should say, I think that some amount of deinstitutionalization was good. We had too many people in hospitals, but we went way, way too far. We went much further than Japan and Europe went. You know, Japan had much less deinstitutionalization than Europe. Europe had much less than we did. We had the most. So you do need some amount of psychiatric hospitals. Group homes are a great alternative for people with schizophrenia. My aunt was in a group home. I mean, there's not a lot of disagreement among everybody other than the really radical deniers of mental illness, of whom the ACLU straddles that a bit. Sometimes they deny mental illness. Sometimes they deny that simply that you should coerce some amount of people to get some care. One, so I think that there's, so I'll, you know, I think part of the reason I put some emphasis on a care system is I think that if you have a proper care system in place, it's going to be a lot easier to compel treatment or get people into treatment without the need for courts in general. I don't know how much, you know, um, addicts, not very many, hardcore addicts. So some amount of compelling care is going to be required. I think Americans are going to have a really hard time compelling psychiatric uh, care for people that don't break any laws. That's, I think, some ways that's sad because I don't think any of us, like if your brother or mother or sister or whatever, son, was has schizophrenia and became an addict and was living on the street, you'd really wish they could get care before living on the street. But it may be that for now, particularly given how many people are on the street, that the, the mechanism will be law enforcement and as Assemblymember Kylie mentioned, enforcing laws against drug, open drug use, drug dealing, public camping, that enforcement of those laws, particularly given how many laws a single person breaks in a very short period of time, might be the best way to then compel treatment in the sense that you offer the treatment, either rehab or psychiatric care, some mix, as the alternative to incarceration. You know, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the mental health advocates that I describe in the book, which includes Treatment Advocacy Center, um, NAMI, and others who would like to see more coercive hospitalization, for example. 
I worry that they're not, it's not, I just worry they're, they're not going to get very much of it. I mean, I think in terms of Gavin's new care court proposal, you have to remember that we have something called assisted outpatient treatment already, which we call Laura's law. New York calls it Kendra's law. Why don't we implement it? <laughs> you know, we have conservatorship and the bar is super high because conservatorship is so radical in the sense of just taking, you know, it's, Britney Spears, really that whole case did such a disservice because so many other people have benefited from conservatorship and many of the people that need conservatorship are not famous celebrities. They're really down and out homeless people. But even we've just not even implemented the assisted outpatient treatment. And this is where with the book, I got to a place where I was like, you know, is it that the judges are too left wing and pathologically altruistic? <laughs> Um, is it that we don't have the right laws? I mean, it's a little bit of everything. We don't quite have the right laws. We don't have the care system. The judges won't require people to do a, you know, assisted outpatient treatment. They won't use Laura's law. So I'm a little, you know, it's like on the one hand, do I support care courts? Sure. You know, on the other hand, I'm, I, I can't quite understand why you wouldn't do what the get, you know, the governor's advisor you know, who a Assembly Member Kylie just referenced, who says it's a leadership problem, why you wouldn't do what he says, which is the statewide psychiatric addiction care system. There's a fair number of people, even on the pretty radical left, like a number of academic, very, very progressive academics who, I, who I've been in touch with before and since the book came out, who were like, look, if you had a proper mental health care system, they'd be much more comfortable with some amount of coercion. If you don't have that system in place, they fear, and I think rightly so, that people are going to end up in jail or in really poor facilities. Kevin, in terms of the legislation that you and your colleagues have put forward, um, accountability, compassion, treatment, what types of investments um, are you thinking about? If you could, if you could wave a magic magic legislative wand um, to allocate funding to the creation of psychiatric treatment, psychiatric capacity within the state that seems to be sorely lacking, um, what type, what type of investments are we looking at? And and I'll just note that we're that the California state budget now is up to three hundred billion dollars. Um, I was, I was shocked that that's a 50% increase over our budget just two, two years ago. And, and, and a budget that has risen about um, three times faster than uh, per capita economic growth, uh, inflation adjusted. Um, the dollars seem to be there. Um, what do you think we need to do and, and how successful we'll be in terms of making those investments? Let me begin with Kevin. I'll come back to Michael. Sure. So one, uh, you know, facet of it was a, a budget proposal uh, to create what was called a mental health infrastructure fund. Uh, you know, it would uh, enhance and extend the state's temporary funding program to purchase, construct, or rehabilitate properties into new county mental health uh, and addiction treatment facilities. Uh, right now, there's a deficit of about 7,730 beds. And so the aim was to 
to, you know, uh, to close that gap. Uh, and then secondly, to create new centers for behavioral health focused education uh, in order to expand the treatment workforce to get the professionals uh, that would be there to staff those beds. Um, so, um, you know, uh, those are investments that we have, as you say, plenty of money for not only this, you know, $100 billion supposedly uh, surplus that uh, we're talking about, but all of the money that even uh, is is funded automatically as part of the Mental Health Services Act uh, through this billionaire's tax, which is huge amount of money, multi, at least a couple billion uh, every year uh, that could be used for that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned bipartisan support uh, for Newsom Cares Act. Um, do you, I mean, as you look out, you know, one, two, three, four years out, um, if we don't change gears, we're not gonna we're not gonna advance the ball on this on this issue. Um, as you chat with your colleagues within the assembly, you know, Republican and Democrat, I know there's not all that many Republicans in the assembly. Um, are you encouraged uh, at all by by the discussions you have um, or the um, the visions of what others within the state legislature have. Do you see any? Do you see things changing much? Uh, probably not. I mean, you know, uh, without uh, a change in leadership, I think that uh, you know we've seen these problems continue to grow in California. Not just homelessness, but so many other things, uh, and they've only gotten worse and worse. And you wonder kind of what the tipping point is. I will say that you know there's uh, perhaps an opportunity right now for a, a new direction in the legislature because there's a just huge uh, change in personnel going on, uh, which is uh, essentially being, um, you know, is, is a product of two factors. Uh, one is that we just did redistricting, which has created whole new districts. Some people are running for other offices and so forth. Uh, and then the second thing is that um, we have people terming out uh, for the first time in a long time uh, in uh, in 2024. So in uh, 2010, it was California voters uh, changed the term limit rules. So you used to be able to serve six years in the assembly, eight years in the Senate. Uh, starting in 2012, you could serve uh, an overall uh, 12 years, uh, whether it's in one house or the other or some combination of the two. So what that means is that uh, the 2012 class, the first class to come in under those new rules, uh, they're terming out in 2024. And so you have a, a bunch of legislators who um, will be ending their time in the legislature then. And then a lot are sort of leaving for other opportunities, knowing that that's uh, on the horizon. Um, so you've had this, uh, you know, and then there's also the Speaker of the Assembly uh, is himself turned out in 2024. So there's been some uh, efforts to oust him uh, recently, uh, which may ultimately happen uh, within a pretty short amount of time here. Um, so you know, there is uh, perhaps an opportunity uh, for those who really care about these issues um, to uh, you know, try to encourage um, the uh, you know, dramatically changed legislature to, uh, to take a new approach to things. And uh, let me ask you, as um, as a lawyer, as uh, as a legal scholar, I, I did mention during introduction that, <clears throat> in addition to all you do as an assembly member, you also are an adjunct professor of law at um, at uh, I believe McGeorge Law School. Um, may I ask you um, if if you've given thought to legal challenges over um, you know someone more co? I don't want to use the word coercive, but if there are people with mental health issues that are refusing treatment, 
Um, have you given thought to the type of legal challenges that might be present there? Um, and whether these might these types of new laws might stand up to court challenge? You know, I'm not uh, an expert uh, in that area. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, we have sort of, uh, you know, we have this Boise decision uh, in California, uh, which are uh, the Ninth Circuit, um, which is somewhat different than other uh, federal circuits. Um, so I, I haven't given a great deal of thought to that, though, for example, how this, uh, some of the, um, what's currently in the CARES Act is still, by the way, a work in progress, the this CARES Act bill. So uh, we'll see what the final version looks like, but um, how, how that might, what challenges that might be susceptible to. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, there are enough of these groups out there that sort of, uh, you know, uh, their sort of uh, reason for being is to file challenges along these lines as so-called homeless advocates uh, that you probably will see, um, you know, something or another, but uh, I haven't analyzed it closely. Okay. Michael, let me bring you in. You, um, you recently ran for governor for the uh, within the state. Um, so I'd love to hear your ideas about, you know, your feelings, your views about partisan issues within the state, um, impediment, political impediments to kind of getting the things done that you think uh, and, and that many of us think, uh, think need to be done. Yeah, well, I agree with Assemblymember Kylie. obviously. I mean, I think that you need a political, I just, this is going to have to be dealt with at the ballot box or not dealt with at all. I don't see, I mean, I, I hope, um, as Assemblymember uh, Kylie said, that um, kind of a new, some turnover in the legislature brings some change. You know, if we can muddle through this and solve it by muddling, I'm all I'm all in favor of it. I mean, anything, whatever it would take to get some change, I tend to think it's going to require a, a political solution. I mean, I um, yeah, what can I say? I mean, you know, look, they got rid of, you know, Chesa Bodine, the district attorney in San Francisco. I think there's a good shot. They'll be able to get rid of the district attorney of Los Angeles. I think there's a good shot that. Um, Rick Caruso will be elected mayor of Los Angeles. Now, there's some very, very progressive radical left folks that are running who are police abolitionists that are in Los Angeles. So I, I don't know. I mean, there is this there is this thing called the Curley effect, which you may know about. It's something that um, since I come from the left, I learn all these things that concert only conservatives know about. But I was informed there's this thing called a curly effect, which is where I guess he was the mayor of Boston. He did a terrible job in the early part of the 20th century, and a lot of people left. But the people that stayed were the people that benefited from his policies. And so you can kind of get a downward vicious cycle. So, I mean, that's that's scary. To some extent, that's what's happening, right? Because the people that tend to leave California even if you just look at the most high profile people, you know, Joe Rogan and, you know, Ben Shapiro and Elon Musk, they tend to be more kind of politically conservative or right of center, they, which tends to be folks that want more social order, they want more, they have higher value on propriety, on, on stricter social norms. So as those folks go, you have an electorate that is more, just more, very, more liberal and more, more Big Lebowskian. So, but who knows? It's so hard, you know, predicting the future, it's just, 
we got to we got to try to make the future because we can't predict it. Sure. Um, California shrinking. Uh, Six million people moved out of the state um, between 2010 and, and uh, between the 2010 and 2020 censuses. Um, right. Many of those would be somewhat self-selected into more, you know, I would say less progressive types of politics. Um, nevertheless, you know, the surveys that are done in the state, you know, to the extent we can talk about a median voter, those persons' priorities and what they are looking for still seem to be, you know, very far away from the kind of policies we see implemented, for example, in San Francisco. Um, to, uh, you know, as a, as a guy who's working for, for political office, um, do you, I mean, do you see uh, an electorate that's really wedded to the status quo ideas that are, that are stopping us from doing this? I, I often think, hey, only a small subset of the state can be this, can have these views that are just seem to be coming from a different, a whole different reality. So you've run for political office. Um, are you encouraged by what you see in terms of California's? And, and if so, do you have any ideas about why, why their voices, why the middle's voice is not heard more within the state, at least in terms of the kind of policies that we're seeing? Are you asking that to me, Lee? Yeah, as, yeah. yeah. And, then I'll, and then I'll bring Kevin in. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Kevin won, so it's probably. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's a mixed bag, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, you know, we had a lot of support from folks across the state. I think we ended up coming, we get like about 5% in Los Angeles. We really didn't have money to advertise at all. So we were very happy to come in third. And so, and we did find a lot of support from, you know, Democrats, uh, Republicans, independents. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems is actually the lack of, I just think the, the it's, it's not just an election, electoral problem, it's also a political machine problem. The Democratic Party and the Democratic machine and the establishment is so well organized and so powerful and has so much more resources than the conservative side of things. Now, to some extent, that's reflective of the voter registration because it's 24% Republican in California. I think it's 45% Democrat at this point. And will that make it 31% no party preference? But I also think it's reflective on the political machines. There's just a much higher level of organization and, and belief and confidence on the liberal side. I think there's this other dynamic, uh, particularly among the elites, but the elites defined to include, you know, the upper middle class is that they tend to be, they're, they're anywhere people now. You know, there's this distinction, somewhere people, anywhere people, somewhere people have to be in a particular place to do their jobs, teachers, service workers, manual laborers, construction, janitors, whatever, plumbers. And then there's anywhere people, anywhere people, high tech entrepreneurs, all sorts of other kind of knowledge industries. And these folks can do their jobs anywhere. And that includes often the people that can finance campaigns. So I just found there was weak commitment to California among affluent people capable of donating to political campaigns. There was some, I found some support and some belief in California. And there's certainly people like me that are just 
you couldn't, I mean, it would take a lot for me to leave the state because I love it so much. I, I just really am a Californian and I am passionate about California. I'm still in love with the state. But I think there's a lot of other people that just kind of go, look, I can be in Miami, I can be in Austin, I can be, you know, somewhere else and pay much less in taxes and have a really high quality of life and not have to deal with the chaos of homelessness. And I think that's a problem because, you know, if you think about the Carnegie's and Rockefeller's and Mellon's, these early industrialists, as the new capitalists, bourgeoisie, so to speak, they would create a new political order. They would finance the new politicians. They would replace the, the tired old ancien regime. And if our guys, and if we end up self-segregating and self-sorting into red and blue enclaves around the country, I worry about, I worry not only about California, but I worry about, I worry about the whole country. Well, um, let me bring you in, and I'd like to ask you um, just to segue about the process of construction and building. It's, we can't really have a discussion about homelessness without talking about building more homes. Um, I find it maddening how expensive it is to build in this state, how much red tape there is. Um, I read just yesterday that the average cost of constructing a 500 square foot apartment, it may not even be that much, in San Francisco is $1.22 million. That would buy three, That at the median home price in the country of $400,000, you could go out and buy three full size family homes with land. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you your thoughts about, you know, you know the, the, why isn't there anyone within the within state or local government saying, "Hey, we have we have to stop this insanity. It shouldn't cost 1.2 million dollars to build a cookie cutter apartment for the homeless. Um, we're better off writing a couple writing them checks for for a few hundred thousand dollars and tell them to go find a housing elsewhere." And de facto, that's what's happening here. Um, do you see? Is there any sense within the state legislature of say? modifying uh, the California Environmental Quality Act, which is one driver behind behind these uh, of the top costs or behind, or is there any progress that might be made in terms of, you know, the, just the, uh, the Byzantine types of financing that are endemic in these types of affordable housing projects? Uh, there's been very little. Um, the, the two things that the legislature has been willing to do to a, in a very minor way uh, in recent years is sort of uh, one-off CEQA uh, exemptions uh, for things like arenas or this Berkeley uh, housing situation that recently came up, uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, reforming zoning laws uh, to some extent to allow um, you know, for the uh, greater flexibility in, in building uh, accessory dwelling units uh, or in subdividing uh, one's own property. Uh, those have really been the only two things there's been any interest in doing. Uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, I, you know, when it comes to homelessness in particular, there was an audit of homelessness spending in the city of Los Angeles. I believe it was $800,000 uh, to house a single homeless person. Uh, the median home price in California, I mean, it could reach like a million dollars next year, right? Um, it's just absolutely insane. And so, you know, the factors that are clearly driving this are to some extent the cost of, uh, 
of materials and so forth. But then there's just the fees that, uh, you know, result in uh, tens of thousands of dollars, at least of costs before you even uh, break ground. Of course, uh, the labor costs, when you have project labor agreements, skilled and creative workforce requirements, uh, all of these things that the, uh, you know, that the unions uh, force the legislature to do. Uh, and uh, if you don't, by the way, there's some, in some Democrats, they'll try to do a bill that doesn't have, you know, the full extent of prevailing wage and the unions just absolutely uh, go after them in really like vile ways uh, sometimes. Um, and then, you know, CEQA is, uh, Jerry Brown said that, that reforming CEQA was the Lord's work. Uh, he did nothing about it in his eight years as governor, his, his last eight years uh, as governor. Uh, so, you know, all of those are issues that um, uh, contribute to the undersupply of housing uh, in California in general, but are, of course, relevant to the homeless situation as well. And by the way, Gavin Newsom uh, pro promised a Marshall Plan for housing when he came to office and new permitting has actually uh, declined. And, you know, he's we're several hundred thousand dollars uh, short of the units per year uh, that he promised. I will say, by the way, just as one sort of um, more general comment, uh, piggybacking on your last question, sort of my uh, lack of optimism uh, that I, uh, you know, have expressed uh, in response to your questions on this issue and other issues. That's a lack of optimism in sort of the capacity of our legislature as it's now constituted to right the ship of its own accord. Um, I do think that it's a pretty exciting time uh, for those who are interested in seeing political change in California, because there's a lot of sort of forces exogenous to the capital uh, that are influencing our politics, which Michael mentioned several of them. What we've seen the recall of the school board members in San Francisco, the recall of the DA in San Francisco, both by overwhelming margins, uh, you know, what's going on uh, in Los Angeles. And so there is this like growing sense, even in the most liberal cities in the state, that we don't need to just sort of accept the life that what life has become. Uh, in California, uh, that we can do things differently. I think the legislature is sort of the hardest institution to change for various political reasons. But, you know, when you have a sort of desire for change or a movement, whatever you want to call it, that grows strong enough that I think, you know, even in a very uh, corrupted system like we have in California, there is a tendency to find the sort of institutional channels to translate that into, into change in the real world. Okay, thank you. And for um, for folks listening um, who uh, who who blissfully know less about the California Environmental Quality Act than we do, uh, CEQA was passed in 1970, signed into law by um, then Governor Ronald Reagan. Um, most people who studied CEQA, um, I would say, both on the left and the right, have uh, concluded that it has been really weaponized um, to prevent. I wrote two op-eds, um, one about Rancho Cucamonga taking 40 years to complete an annexation of land for new housing. Um, it started in the mid-1970s. It was just completed. Still no houses are built, so probably be about 50 years to get those new houses built in Rancho Cucamonga. And um, the New Hall development near Los Angeles was a planned 60,000-person community. Plans were submitted in 1994. All CEQA-based lawsuits were not resolved until 2017, um, five years after the project had had been approved, but then there were more environmental lawsuits. Um, that just seems to be a uh, low-hanging fruit for legislative attention. Um, um, we're, uh, we're, I, I'd like to get to some questions here. Um, 
To the question, is homelessness a growth industry in California? The $17 billion spent over the past years, past four years went somewhere. So there are people, companies making big dollars on this. Um, why is nobody in the California government auditing how this is spent? Um, or why is not the case? Let me, um, uh, Michael, let me begin with you and then, we'll, and then we'll go over to Kevin and get his perspective from being within the uh, assembly. So um, $17 billion <laughs> over four years, that's a lot of money. Um, why aren't we? Why aren't we looking at where that goes as a taxpayer? All of us are taxpayers. Um, yeah, relevant question. Is is this just is this just a symptom of the problem that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'm glad it came up again because I think I realized there was something I forgot to say, which I do think is a huge problem, and I see it's in the other comments. But basically, housing first is a grift in the sense that. It is about creating really expensive houses, 600 from $600,000 to a million dollars per unit for an apartment for a homeless person. That amount of money allows for a huge number of people to make money as consultants, you know, soft costs, and then for them to all kick back money to the politicians, you know, mayors but really city council people, governor, legislators, everybody who supports housing first then is rewarded financially from all the people that make money making housing, as opposed to if you're just providing shelter, you know, if you're just Andy, Reverend Andy Bales at Union Rescue Mission in Los Angeles, the biggest homeless shelter in Los Angeles, he doesn't he doesn't make big political contributions. He's providing low cost shelter. I mean, shelter, cheap, basic, low cost shelter could, should cost. I mean, I don't know, you know, somewhere between 15 and twenty five thousand dollars a year per person. And it should be temporary as you get that person into group home or rehab or reaffiliate them with family and friends. So definitely there is this financial driver behind housing first. I just think that that doesn't quite explain the hold that the discourse has on people's, on the brains of voters that comes from a deeper place. But definitely housing first is a huge mechanism for recycling housing, money for housing development into political campaigns. Kevin, um, can we follow the money? There seems to be not much interest in the legislature for figuring out where that seventeen billion went. No, of course not. I, I mean, this is precisely what I proposed: was a full audit of all statewide homelessness spending. Was what I proposed again this year. Um, and uh, as I said, we were one vote away from getting it done a couple of years ago. Um, but it was really the governor's office that stopped that from happening. And by the way, there was then a bipartisan uh, measure, a Democrat authored a bill that would have sort of done what I was proposing in a more uh, modest way. So I co-authored that. It passed the legislature unanimously. The governor vetoed it. Um, and so we're still really in the dark about a lot of these things. I will say that, it, you know, it, it sort of connects to a broader point, which is just the 
unbelievable growth of the California state budget uh, with diminishing returns or really negative returns because things keep getting uh, worse. Like in 20 years ago, the budget was $100 billion. This year, it's $300 billion. So you think about that, it's like, what, 150 years to get the first $100 billion, uh, 20 years to add $200 billion more uh, when the quality of government service and the quality of life sort of has declined during those 20 years by every objective metric. And so homelessness is a very clear example of that. We spend more and more, the problem gets worse and worse. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why I think that, yes, a starting point is let's look exactly where the money is going and what we're getting in return for it. No, what, what we're getting in return for, it doesn't seem to be we're doing a very good job in terms of, you know, quantifying what, 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 what is out there. And, um, you know, there's a recent Hoover report written by my colleague, Josh Rao, who uh, unfortunately is traveling today. He was going to be part of a part of our event. Um, and, Jillian, and Jillian Ludwig, who wrote, the lack of data on funding recipients, the interaction of homeless with the government, the tracking outcomes of state funding, the lack of data undermines any reasonable assessment and accountability. Um, what I, what I really, one, one part of what I really like about ACTS is, uh, of your legislative proposal is, is trying to implement, um, is trying to implement in the most in the most technologically advanced state in the country, try to get better at measurement. Um, is that something that there's any uh, interest within the legislature? I know you have a whole package of, of legislation, but uh, it seems like we can make so much progress if we could just get more data in terms of what in terms of in terms of understanding who they are, what their needs are, and what we need to do. Um, any prog any any possible progress there? And then I'll bring in Michael. Well, yeah, I mean, there was this bill I mentioned that had bipartisan support. The audit I proposed uh, on the Senate side, there was 5-0 voted in favor of it. Um, there was a smaller uh, audit also of just sort of the continuum of, of continuum of care system that was approved and was uh, conducted. Um, so, you know, the issue has reached a level of salience where there is um, a kind of, I think, desire on the part of some legislators to at least look like they're doing something uh, about it. Um, but again, I think that a lot of times they're kind of afraid what these audits are going to turn up. <laughs> they're not going to make people look good uh, when we find out where how billions of dollars are just being squandered. Um, Michael, let me bring you in. Um, there's a, uh, one question is, and I think this will be right up your alley. The, the, the person writes, I've donated to Life Moves in the Bay Area, which I've been impressed with, providing short-term and up to one year, one year shelter for families, plus case management to address gaps in job readiness and health needs, and to help move people to permanent housing. Um, uh, in the event that this is um, this is a nonprofit you're familiar with, um, is there something that we can we can build on there? Uh, is that something that can be scaled up? I mean, there's there's a lot <clears throat> there's a lot of good programs out there, and they all follow from having using carrots and sticks to help people to overcome addiction and get into recovery and deal with their problematic behaviors. So yeah, they just, there's they, the, the vast majority of the stuff that's funded through public funding is stuff that does not, is not contingency management. Contingency management is where you reward good behavior and you have consequences for 
self-destructive or destructive behaviors. And the most famous example of this was developed in Birmingham, Alabama with crack addicts who they'd all get shelter, but then if they pass a drug test then they would be able to get their own room in permanent supportive housing. And if they fail the drug test, they go back to shelter. There's no requirement like that on the vast majority of publicly funded programs. So yeah, there's there's plenty of good stuff you can go and find in California, but the preponderance of it that's publicly funded, including Project Room Key, which was all this money during the stim, you know, from stimulus and during the pandemic to just put so-called homeless people into their own motel rooms with no supervision or requirements for behavior. Um, that's just the norm. So it's really about switching the policy away from housing first to shelter first, treatment first, and housing earned. Thank you. Thank you. Um, gentlemen, I, it's been a treat for me to spend uh, the last hour plus with you and learn from you. Um, just to recap, um, I learned a lot from you about mental health issues and just how homelessness really has been reclassified or really has been misclassified from the standpoint of who the chronically homeless are and why we continue to fail in that dimension. Uh, and the investments that the state needs to make in psychiatric capacity and personnel. And um, there's a lot of issues that we uh, weren't able to get to obviously within one hour, but um, I truly appreciate your time on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for, uh, for joining us today. And um, uh, for those listeners, thank you for thank you for being with us. Um, we're glad you were able to uh, to join us and learn from um, two remarkable scholars and very accomplished gentlemen um, who deeply care about the state and want to make it better. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, thanks to the Hoover Institution for making all the uh, investments to be able to allow us to join you today. Um, I'm Leo Hanya on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you.